So together, uh, or I will read all of Hebrews 11 as we begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, He did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hebrews 11 is perhaps one of the most famous chapters of all Scripture, and yet even as we begin to consider it, we have to, we have to understand it in its context. What is the book of Hebrews? What's going on in it? Hebrews is a very unique book. Uh, its author is unknown. Its intended audience is unknown. And so it raises questions of what was being communicated and interestingly produces um, a, a certain tension. Most commentators agree when they talk about the book of Hebrews and try to get a handle on what is going on in the book of Hebrews, they notice two interesting features. One is that uh, certainly Hebrews is thematically organized. It all goes together, but there are also distinct units in the book of Hebrews. So most commentators think that the book of Hebrews was actually essentially a sermon series. It was uh, delivered probably to a community. It was intended to be heard uh, together, but as as separate salvos, so to speak, uh, in the course of the book. The funny thing about that is there's a certain tension that is produced by the time you get to chapter 11. And for us to understand chapter 11, we have to understand that tension that has been produced. Because for chapters 1 through 10, everything up to this point in time in the book of Hebrews, the author has had one chief intent, and that is to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus Christ to everything that has come before. And so if we were to quickly survey chapters 1 through 10 in the book of Hebrews, this is what the author argues. Jesus is superior to angels. Being God's son, he alone achieves salvation for his people. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus alone offers true Sabbath rest. Jesus is the one true high priest and trumps the old priesthood. His sacrifice is better than all these sacrifices that have come before. Jesus is the presence of God incarnate, so he trumps the tabernacle and the temple. And the new covenant that he ushers in is better than the old covenant. Not too shabby of a resume. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, is spending a long time really trying to demonstrate the point that Jesus fulfills everything that the Old Testament was headed to and pointed toward. He is the hero of the entire story of the Old Testament. You see, he's writing to a group of people who have chosen to follow Jesus, but they're being persecuted, and under their suffering, they're thinking about turning away. 
They were Jews who had become Christians. But because of what it's cost them, they're thinking about returning to their Judaism and abandoning the idea that Jesus is Messiah. And it's in the midst of this that the author makes this argument and spends ten chapters promoting the supremacy of Jesus. You, you read the first ten chapters of Hebrews and you come off with this overwhelming sense that Jesus is everything. He is the hero. And then you get to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is a catalog of other heroes. Other individuals that occur throughout the Old Testament who are set apart for the faith that was demonstrated in their actions. And so you enter chapter 11 and you, there's a certain tension because you say, well, who is the hero? Is Jesus the hero? Or is it the people of chapter 11? And frankly, we get a little bit uncomfortable because the people of chapter 11 seem to be held out as examples. And they seem to be hand out, handed out as examples because of what they've done. Sometimes we get a little bit nervous to talk about that because it seems like, well, are we talking about salvation by works or something of that nature? And that's not the case at all. What we're going to see through the course of the sermon series is that you have to hold these two things together. That Jesus is the hero, but because Jesus is the hero, he enables your heroism. I think one of the sad aspects of the church today and one of the things that we all struggle with is that we have a deep sense that we're called to do something heroic. And we feel a terrible inability to carry through with that. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Chapter 11 is, yes, these men and women are examples to you. They've done heroic things based on their faith. And this is what, this is what's to encourage the audience of Hebrews to remain faithful in their suffering. But it is encouragement to us that we would aspire to something heroic based on the hero. And it's when we lament, uh, or that's the wrong word, it's as we know that we're called to something heroic, and we fail to actually engage hero- her- heroism, rather than uh, we fail to engage heroism and instead get lulled to sleep by everything around us, that we feel this in- inner frustration. We know we're not being what we're called to be, nor do we experience what we're called to experience. We read these stories and the examples and we think, I don't even know how to access that. But as we go through, we're we're going to work at what it means to be heroic. And really, this is the theme of the sermon series. These, These four ideas will carry us throughout the entire sermon series. One is that all peoples of all times have desired a hero. Number two, we we often choose the wrong hero. Number three, there is one true hero. Number four, by having faith in the one true hero, we become heroic. Number one, all peoples have desired a hero. We often choose the wrong hero. Number three, there's one true hero. And number four, when we have faith in the one true hero, that's what enables us to be heroic. So number one, all people want a hero. There's a book written by Joseph Campbell in 1949 that was entitled uh, The Hero Without with a Thousand Faces. And it was what we call a seminal work. A seminal work is a work that introduces an idea for the first time. And what Joseph Campbell, who was a scholar in comparative religions, said, and who spent most of his time studying ancient documents, came to the conclusion that all ancient hero stories have a basic structure to them 
that unifies them together. In fact, he argued that you can't actually find a, a hero story of the ancient world that doesn't have these basic characteristics in it. So he would, he would call these basic characteristics a monomyth, but this is how he described it. This will feel a little abstract to begin with, but it's a, trust me, we'll get, un, we'll move away from abstraction and into practicality. But Campbell writes, a hero ventures forth, this is the, 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 uh, the structure that's common to all myths. A hero ventures forth, and by myth I mean a story that isn't necessarily true, that is intended to answer a big question. Right? In, in literature you have fables, which tend to try to answer a localized question. So if you're growing up in the proximity of elef- elef- elephants, and you, uh, you think, boy, it's really odd that an elephant has a long trunk, you're, you develop a story of how the, alliga- the elephant was messing with the alligator, and the alligator snapped at the nose of the elephant, and the elephant pulled back, and that's how he got a long nose. That's a fable. A myth is something that deals with a much bigger question. Like, why do we always do what we don't want to do? Or why do humans always hurt each other? Right? Or how did we, um, where did we come from? And so cultures have developed stories to answer these kinds of questions. And so Campbell writes, A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Right, sounds a little bit abstract at the beginning. Let's get really practical. Think about Moses. Moses grows up in Egypt in Pharaoh's court. He decides eventually to depart from Pharaoh's court, journeys into a far land where he is encountered by very, by God himself, right, by great power. He's then given certain authority and power with which he returns and bestows blessing upon his fellow man, boons on his fellow man, freedom from Egypt. Think about Jesus. Jesus comes to earth, goes out uh, into the wilderness, has a decisive victory over the devil, comes back, bestows miraculous uh, signs and wonders upon the people, then goes again and has a decisive victory at the cross and confers power over sin and death to those who are his. And on and on we could go. We could go to Asia and talk about Buddha. We could go to Egypt and talk about Osiris. We could go to Greece and talk about Prometheus. And what Campbell is saying in all these stories, this is the basic fabric that we find all over the world over and over again. And it's not just in ancient literature, right? By now you should be thinking, oh, this story sounds pretty familiar. We still tell it all the time, right? Batman, right? Bruce Wayne, tragically orphaned as a child, goes into a distant country on a journey, eventually develops all kinds of skills and abilities, faces his nemesis, Ra's al Ghul, defeats him, returns to bestow boons, Right? Safety and protection upon the citizens of Gotham. Right? Harry Potter. Exits the common everyday world to enter the world of magic. Grows into that world, acquires certain skills and abilities. Eventually faces off against Voldemort, defeats Voldemort, and confers safety and protection upon the magical world. Right? We could do this all day long. Right? Pretty interesting. That there's a basic certain fabric to all mythical stories. To all narratives. Where does that come from? All people have always desired a hero. There is something intrinsic to us where uh, from the dawn of time, humanity of all cultures has said, you know what? 
the mess we're in demands that we be rescued by someone or something outside from us. And this has fostered the stories that have always developed. What's happened, though, in the 20th century and what Campbell notes, because he's not a believer in any of these, he calls the basic structure the monomyth, and he isn't a believer himself. And the interesting kind of funny thing that happened in the 20th century, it really started happening before the 20th century, but you see it kind of blossom in the 20th century, is that people stopped believing in the monomyth. Right? Culturally, I'm not talking about you, but culturally, people say, well, there's really no, no truth to the story of Jesus or Buddha or Allah. Right? Choose the one that works for you and get on with life. And monomyth now, this basic structure of a hero, is what we use for entertainment. Right? Batman and Harry Potter and the Avengers. I re- there was an article in Wired Magazine this week that talked about all, all the hero stories in the pipeline. Right? From Marvel and DC that are coming out on the big screen over the next couple of years. You, we're all going to be vomiting from overexposure to hero stories two years down the road. Why? Because they make the most money. Because the most people want to see them, men and women, and regardless of age, they're the most popular at the box office. So the big studios are going to pour them out. Why, does it, why do those stories resonate with us? Why do they resonate with us now? Return the monomyth not into something that we particularly believe is culture, but something that entertains us and still resonates with us in, in some deep way. But if we give up this idea of the, of the monomyth, culturally we've said there's no real actual hero who is supernatural and saves us from this mess from which we cannot save ourselves, then we must choose a different hero. We must look to someone else to save. This is the second thing that we have to remember. All of these points are something that we're going to wrestle with throughout the whole sermon series. And the second idea is that we choose the wrong hero. So we got watched a good example of this, something that I think most of us do to some degree. It's... There's a movie called The Secret Life of Walter uh, Mitty, uh, star, starring Ben Stiller. And it, it's based on a, a great short story that came out in 1939. But it tells the story of this, of this man who's middle-aged, and he's, um, he's disappointed with the lack of heroism in his life. He was once an adventurous kid. His dad died tragically when he was 17. His family had no savings. He went to work to provide for his family. He never looked up. And so he gets to midlife, and he's disappointed with his life, and one of the ways he copes with his disappointment is with a wild imagination. And so one of the funny opening scenes in the movie is he's sitting on a platform waiting for a subway, and he's on the phone with an eHarmony operator trying to fix his account. He's having trouble winking at a girl that he likes at work. And the eHarmony operator is saying, well, you know, you don't really have anything filled out in your profile." If we run very sophisticated algorithms, no one's going to connect with you because you haven't given us any information. Have you done anything? Have you been anywhere interesting? And Walter Mitty says, no, not really. Phoenix is the one place I've been, and I haven't done anything. No, but as, as the conversation is going on, he goes into his happy place, his little imagination. And in his imagination, he suddenly leaps from the platform of the train station, dives through a window, this heroic supernatural leap, dives through a window in a building, comes out having um, pushed everyone out of the building saying it's about to explode, runs out with a three-legged dog in his arm, 
and uh, gets everyone out just as the building explodes. And as the building explodes, the girl he's interested in at work runs up to him and says, you're, you're amazing. And he hands her his dog and says, yeah, by the way, as I was headed down, I, I, I fashioned a prosthesis for a prosthetic leg for your dog. <laughs> and here, and, and she, of course, says, Walter Mitty, you're amazing. And he just says, well, you know, that's just the way I roll. And then he suddenly wakes up, sitting there on the train station, having missed his train. His life hasn't actually changed at all. Are you disappointed with your heroism? Are you one of these people? You kind of find yourself drifting off and imagining your life being a little bit more heroic than it is? That you arrive at a certain moment or say just the right thing or achieve something and you receive more more acclaim, more attention as a result of that. Some of you may not be imaginative quite in that way, but you still see yourself as your own hero. You, you believe that your children's future is wholly dependent on you. You're the hero that has to fill the role to, to, to make sure that they turn out the way you want them to turn out. Others of you look to something else to be a hero for you to save. That might be control, might be power. And others of you look to someone else, perhaps a spouse. Perhaps you've known certain marriages are particularly dysfunctional because there's few things harder in a marriage than when a spouse looks to a spouse to be their hero in all of life. It's a burden that's, that's not, no one's built to bear. The point here is that in small ways and big ways, whether we're looking to ourselves or to a thing or to another person, we are frequently guilty of choosing the wrong hero, looking for rescue from the wrong thing, from something that actually can't deliver, something that can't remedy our situation at all. And this is where we must come to Hebrews 11 and be reminded that there is one true hero, only one, and only one who is true. As I already relayed to you, as we surveyed very briefly at the beginning of the sermon, Hebrews chapter 11, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has been prophesied. He is the hero that fulfills the story and actually achieves rescue. But we might ask, well, if culture has largely decided that the monomyth is not true, and if this this basic structure is common to all stories, why should we believe the story of Jesus? if it really doesn't have necessarily the same uniqueness that we might have perceived it to have, why would we put our stock in that particular story? Well, I'll say two things briefly. One, I've always liked C.S. Lewis, who may not have been the first person to say it, but he said it well, which is that all stories in the world are echoes of the one true story. And in that, I think the fabric of reality echoes the one true story, which is all things, all promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And because he is that one true hero, yet many stories try to echo it. Many stories try to mimic it. But it is only fulfilled in one person. And the other thing I will say is maybe one of the chief reasons that I pursue God and 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 believe that he has reached out and, and saved me, but find Christianity particularly unique is the notion of forgiveness and love. If I look at any other religion of the world, 
and perhaps any, well, we'll just leave it at religion for now. I see uh, situations that are based on an economy. That if you do something, you get something. Right? That's how religions work. If you meditate hard enough and finally come to the place where you see all suffering is illusion, then in return you might get nirvana. Or if you labor really hard to honor Allah in this life and do things that glorify Him, then maybe you might get to go to heaven. But the story of Christianity is unique in that God comes to us and says, yes, you've really messed things up, and I love you to the point of dying for you, and it's not based on what you have done, nor is it based on what you will do. It is simply based on my love and my desire to make things whole. That's what makes Christianity unique in the story, all the stories of the world. And it's the reason that the hero, who is Jesus, stands out boldly against a relief of all other heroes. And it's why that when we come to believe in Jesus, we are actually enabled to be heroic. Right? You long to be heroic. People in general long to be heroic. That's why hero stories are popular. Often people are watching them and saying, kind of placing themselves in the role of the hero that they watch and imagining what life would be around them if they could be that person, saving things, repairing situations around them, setting the worlds to rights. And I don't think that that desire is actually wrong. It's only wrong when it's not... Um, it's not fed by the one true hero, and it's not intended when we make it a story that doesn't reflect Jesus' story. Because what is the author of Hebrews doing? He's holding out all these examples saying, when you really understand faith, you're going to be heroic. They go hand in hand. If you're not being heroic, then perhaps you don't really understand faith. And this is the expectation that has been laid out for us. You know, sometimes... One of the things that bothers me about the Reformed tradition, we get so hung up on works. Right? When, when Jesus tells a parable of the talents, it's the one who has invested the talents and returns ten talents for what he's been entrusted. Right? Rather than burying it in the ground, who actually receives honor and praise for the faithfulness with which he's been entrusted. And this is the call. Not, not that we're earning something, not that we're contributing to our salvation, but do we really believe what God has done in Jesus Christ on our behalf? Do we believe that He's the hero? Then what would it look to order your life like that? And this is why faith is at the center of Hebrews 11. This is why faith is crucial. This is why it is impossible to please God without faith. So what does it mean to be heroic after the one true hero? It is to live by faith, which is a phrase that will occur some 13 times in in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 1 with me. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not some psychological status by which you say, I believe, I'm happy, I feel warm fuzzies as a result of my belief. When the author of Hebrews says that it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, he's describing something that is objective. In other words, if you have faith, 
Faith will be evidenced by doing something that is actually objective in life, which is why he then goes on to tell you story after story of decisions that were made based on belief. Right? Can you imagine how the story reads? Uh, you know, by faith, Abraham and Sarah had really sweet times, quiet times, and listened to good worship music, and uh, raised raised godly children who didn't do bad things. What a boring chapter that would be. No, by faith, they actually stepped out and did outstanding, unbelievably, ridiculously brave things because they had confidence in God's promises. Not because they were looking to protect themselves from what they considered to be scary in life. And so in verse 1, we see that faith is objective. In verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. What was their commendation? Two or three times the author goes out of his way to, to tell you uh, pointedly that they do not receive what was promised. It's waiting in the future. So what did they receive? They received more of God himself. And to receive more of God himself, there is nothing sweeter and there is nothing that brings a greater satisfaction and is more, uh, more sating to the soul than to receive more of God himself. It is the commendation for which we should most long. And so we see that this faith is essential, but why faith? Do you not get frustrated sometimes about faith? I do. Why, why is faith the economy of God's relationship with us? Right? Do you not just sit sometimes and say, really, God, couldn't you just... I mean, all the miracles in the Old Testament and New... One time, handwriting on the wall, that would be awesome. That would really encourage my faith. Or if we could do the fleece thing, wet ground, dry fleece, wet fleece, dry ground, I would really appreciate that. That would be great. But even those don't remedy the situation because they're not regularly occurring. God is always valued in in the way that He works in this world that faith would be at the core of His relationship with us. Why? If you don't think about this, you're not going to value it, and you're not going to pursue it. Why is faith so important? This has bugged me for a long time. I think about it a lot, and I I don't pretend to give you a comprehensive answer because I think faith is a mystery to some extent, but I'll tell you three things quickly. Number one, faith is essential because your hearts are desperately wicked, far more wicked than you think or know. We don't, we don't come anywhere near to admitting ever in this life, I don't believe, the wickedness of our own hearts. So it takes, you know how many days after Israel leaves Egypt before they start complaining and saying we wish we could go back to Egypt? Three days. Three days after the miraculous works and walking through the sea, it takes them three days to say, we're not so interested, we'd rather go back. That's the wickedness of our hearts the longevity we have of faith. So now think for a minute, what if God went to those people or met us and said, okay, I'm going to give you just what you want. You name it, here it is. What if he did that for Israel? The only thing, it would have been the worst thing for Israel, all they would have had is more resources to make more calves. Instead of one golden calf, you'd have ten. It's important that God does not give us more of himself than we ought to have because we could simply corrupt it. That's number one. Number two, 
Faith is necessary to relationship. You can't have relationship and you can't have a deepening relationship without faith. Right? Consider when you meet someone and you're a little interested and you start dating, you go out to dinner, you go out to a movie, you, you have a little bit of trust. But if you find that that person isn't being faithful or honest or you find out that that person is, is doing something uh, really bad, you break off the relationship. You seek to extend trust. But if you deem them trustworthy, if you keep giving them a little bit more faith and they respond to that faith by fulfilling it and you, the, uh, the sense of trust between the two parties grows, well, eventually you're going to be sharing bank account, sharing children, the most precious things in your entire life. Why? Because that relationship has grown and been fostered because faith has developed. It's the same way in our relationship with God. Number three. You must choose God. And that might sound a little bit funny. And and here we walk on the precipice of of mystery. Because we absolutely confess that God is sovereign. He's chosen you. He's chosen me. We would never come to Him if He hadn't done that. But we also confess that we are responsible to pursue God. Right? Ask, seek, knock. Those aren't promises to unbelievers. They're promises, invitations to the church, which Jesus invites them to pursue Him. And if they do pursue Him, they'll be brought into relationship. So we have the responsibility to choose God, to continue to move forward toward Him, to grow in our sanctification. If we neglect that, we do injustice both to the Bible and to our confession, which describes our sanctification as cooperative. You see the point here? Faith is a necessary element by which we would actually grow toward God. If God simply came down and said, Oh, okay, you're saved, and now you love me, and you're not going to love anything else, and you're all good to go. A, there would be no faith involved, but B, there would be no relationship really involved. You'd just be made kind of a robot. And that's not the way God works. It's not the way He wants. He woos us into loving Him in the most mysterious of ways, But without that faith, the exercise of faith, without that being a commodity in the relationship, it wouldn't actually be the relationship in the way that it is. And so we begin to see that faith is actually magnificent and beautiful and, yes, difficult to understand, but absolutely necessary for us to grow in our relationship with God. It's necessary for us to extend more trust in Jesus. It's necessary for us to do that to then begin to experience any of the heroism that we desire, to be heroic. And so this is what we're after over the course of our sermon series. These four points. All people seek a hero. We choose the wrong hero. There is one true hero. And having faith in the one true hero makes us heroic. In the movie, uh, The Life of Walter Mitty, he works at Life Magazine, and Life Magazine is closing down. But they relay the motto of Life Magazine to you, right? A magazine that celebrated life, which was to see the world, things dangerous to come, to see behind walls, draw closer, to find each other, and to feel. That is the purpose of life. Isn't it interesting that that purpose was not very winsome, at least in the fact that Life Magazine no longer exists? It wasn't that compelling to a very large audience. And yet, the movie would tell you that this is really the meaning of life, and that as Walter Mitty embraces life, 
and pursues danger and is willing to step out of his comfort zone and have experiences, he realizes what it means to be alive. And so he fights a shark and jumps into Arctic waters and saves the magazine's last issue and gets the girl that he desires and um, meets the hero uh, that he's always had, right, and becomes the person he wants to be. And that's great, and it's also Hollywood. Right? What's going to meet Walter Mitty in the experience when he doesn't get the girl that he wants and the shark bites his leg off and he fails at his job or gets fired, right? When real life confronts Walter Mitty, Hollywood doesn't have an answer for that, nor does the motto of Life magazine. We need a hero to enable our heroism. And in that, there is only one true hero to whom we now turn. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your heroics are beyond comparison. For every hero story we enjoy and watch and um, experience, it is but a dim reflection, uh, but a distant echo of what it meant for you to become man and to engage this life and to go to the cross and to be raised from the dead. We praise you as the one true hero who confers the gifts of your heroism upon your brothers and sisters. And as we draw near to you in faith and trust that your story is the best one for us, as we proceed in this sermon series, we pray that your spirit would come upon us and strengthen us and give us courage and that the greater faith that we place upon you, the more that we trust you would result in radical differences in our lives which will be objective demonstrations of our faith. And in this, let us know the heroism that we have been called to. And let us fall all the more in love with you, our true hero. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.